Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and then again every Thursday on YouTube as well and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, you guys, for today's case, this is by far one of the most gruesome cases that we have ever talked about. It truly is a horrific nightmare. However, it also is a survival story. And I personally love covering survival cases, and this one is definitely one that I'm very surprised we haven't covered before. And it is also the first case we've ever covered that took place in South Africa. So that is a very cool milestone on Killer Instinct as well. So with that being said, let's just jump right on into it today. So today we are talking about Allison Biota. Now, Allison was born on September 22nd, 1967 in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. So her birthday is actually coming up in just a couple days. She was born to her parents, Brian and Claire, and she also has a brother named Neil. Now, when Allison was 10 years old, her parents ended up getting a divorce. And after the divorce was finalized, Claire, Allison's mother, got custody of both her and her brother. And so the two of them ended up moving into a new house, just the three of them, and starting their new life and chapter together. Allison and her brother ended up attending Collegiate High School located in Port Elizabeth, and Port Elizabeth is located in the Eastern Cape Province of South Africa. It's a gorgeous city that has lots of beaches, and around the 1970s, which was when Allison was born, it had a population of around 477,000 people, and now, in 2022, the population is over 1 million. After high school, instead of jumping straight into college or university, Allison ended up doing some traveling and exploring before settling down and becoming an insurance broker. So that is the backstory of this case that all leads us to December of 1994. At the time, like I said, Allison was working as an insurance broker and on Saturday, December 17th of 1994, Allison and her friends had gone for dinner and drinks at one of her friend's apartments. Allison and her friends sat out on their friend's apartment balcony and ate pizza and drank wine and just had a very casual but fun night in together. Around midnight, Allison decided that she was going to go home, and she had also offered one of her co-workers, which was a woman named Kim, a ride back to her apartment as well. So Allison and Kim left this get-together a little bit after midnight, and then Allison drove Kim to her apartment before driving herself home, and she got home around 1 a.m. So now we're moving into the very early hours of Sunday, December 18th. Now, when Allison got back to her apartment complex, she had noticed that the parking spot that she usually would go for, which was the spot that was right in front of her apartment door, so she didn't have to walk across a parking lot, it was just a straight shot right to her door, that spot had been filled. 
So instead of taking that spot as she originally hoped to, especially with it being around 1 a.m., Allison had to move to a different parking spot. This specific spot was about 30 or so yards away from Allison's front door. So again, still in walking distance. However, it's 1 a.m. There's not a lot of street lights. It just wasn't the safest environment. But sadly, Allison really didn't have a choice at that point. She had to go to this new parking spot, so she drove over there, turned her car off, and started collecting the items that were sitting in her passenger seat. So as she's collecting her items, such as her purse, her keys, she felt the driver's seat car door open. And when she turns, there is a man standing right beside her. Now, the first thing that Allison noticed is that this man was holding a knife and very quickly, he took that knife and placed it to Allison's neck. He then told her, quote unquote, move over or I'll kill you. Now, at that point, Allison stated that she did not know what to do other than just following the orders of what this man had said in order to protect her life. So without even thinking, she just moved over into the passenger seat and let this man come and sit in the driver's seat. The man then took Allison's car keys from her, put them in the ignition, turned the car on, and drove out of the parking lot with Allison still in the car. Now, when Allison and this man started driving, the man looked at her and informed Allison that he had no intentions of hurting her or killing her, and that his only intention was to simply use her car. He told her that he just needed to use her car for an hour, and then he would drop her and the car back off at the apartment and everything would be fine. Now, it was pretty obvious to Allison from the get-go that this guy did not know anything about her at all. This is not someone who had been stalking her for several days or weeks, months. This was very much a random attack because right when they started driving, this man started asking Allison very small talk type of questions. He had asked her what her name was and if she lived alone. Now, Allison ended up lying and said that her name was in fact Susan and that she had a boyfriend that she lived with who was going to be expecting her home at any moment. Now, Allison told this man pretty quickly into this drive that if it really was just him wanting the car for an hour, that he could have the car for as long as he wanted and that he could just drop her off on the side of the road at this point, take the car, she would find her way home, and it wasn't going to be an issue. However, this man was insistent on the fact that he wanted Allison to drive with him and he informed allison that the whole purpose of this car ride was to go meet up with one of this man's friends who had apparently stolen a tv from him and now owes him money and while they were driving this man told allison that his name was clinton however when allison tried to pry more on other basic information about him he would not give anything up and only really gave her the fact that his name was Clinton. Now, after driving for not too long, the two of them ended up pulling up to the main street of Port Elizabeth, which was a very busy and popular part of town. And Allison said that it was clear to her that Clinton was looking for the man that stole his TV. They circled the street several times before finally Clinton was able to point out the man that he was looking for. 
Now, when Clinton noticed this man and finally could spot him out of the crowd, Clinton rolled down the car window and this friend walked over to the car. Clinton and the friend began talking and the friend ended up introducing himself to Allison as a man named Theans. Theans also got into the car and the three of them now began driving. And this was the point where Allison could tell that this was not simply about a TV. And she never truly believed that that was the case to begin with. However, you do have this hope in the back of your mind that that's all that this is. And it's a simple misunderstanding. And after they have this confrontation or conversation about the money regarding the TV, that Allison is gonna be set free. However, when Theans got back into the car with the two of them, it was very clear to her that this was not just going to be as simple as getting money. Now, the three of them ended up driving to a spot outside of the city in a secluded area near a beach that was described by Allison as an alcove. Clinton drove the car into this alcove away from the main street so no one could see the car. It was just the three of them. Again, they were very secluded in this area. Now, when Clinton stopped the car, he turned to Allison and told her that the reason that they kidnapped her was because they planned on having sex with her. And not that anyone needs any clarification on this. However, it's not that they wanted to have sex with her. It is that they wanted to rape her. And Clinton even asked Allison if she was aware that that was the purpose of them kidnapping her. And Allison said that she was not aware that that was a part of the plan. Now, after Clinton told her this, he had asked Allison if she was going to put up a fight to which she said no. In Allison's book, she stated that she thought that if she didn't fight, if she just let them do what they wanted to do, it would be the best thing for her to do in the moment in order to survive. This was all just a survival tactic. Beans got out of the car while Clinton and Allison stayed inside of it, and Clinton began raping Allison. Now, after Clinton raped Allison, Theans then got back into the car and began raping her as well. And after that, Clinton strangled her. However, after they had strangled her, Allison's leg had twitched, indicating to them that she was still alive. So at that point, they decided to take drastic measures to make sure that Allison would die. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Now, like I said, that's what we know with the information that we have now, but at the time back then when this was happening, obviously Allison was not aware of that fact because she did not intentionally twitch her leg after she had been strangled. However, moments later, Allison felt herself wake 
up and realized the horror of the reality that she was now in. When Allison woke up, she realized she was no longer in the car as she was when she was strangled, but she was now outside of the car laying on the ground with one of the men towering over her. However, this time she couldn't really make out which man it was. Allison woke up to one of the men stabbing her and slashing her throat. Allison was stabbed more than 35 times in the stomach and abdomen, and her throat was slashed over 17 times. Now, you would think, after hearing that, that there is no possible way that anyone would be able to survive this. However, Allison did. Allison recalls that during the attack, she was laying there fully conscious while these men were mutilating her body and tearing her apart. And while she was laying there and this attack was going on, she knew what was happening just because she was able to see the motions that these men were making when they were stabbing her, as well as she was able to hear the sounds of the knife hitting her body and cutting her throat open. And despite the over 50 stab wounds that Allison endured, she felt no pain. It truly was like her body was in that fight or flight mode and in that mode where your body actually tries to protect you. And she really describes it as an out of body experience. And after these men had attacked her, they looked at each other and said, no one can survive that and left her lying there because they thought that she was dead. However, miraculously, Allison was still alive. Now, the first thing that she decided to do was write the names of the men who did this to her on a rock that was next to her in her own blood. And she had also learned something during this attack. She had learned that the man who called himself Quentin, that was not his name. Clinton was actually a man named Franz, and Allison had learned this because Theans was calling him by his real name, not by Clinton. So Allison wrote their two names on a rock, and after she did that, she was able to push herself up from off of the ground and bring herself to her hands and knees. However, when she did that, she felt a strange feeling coming from her stomach. At that point, Allison had looked down and realized that almost all of her intestines had fallen out of her stomach. Allison tried to scoop them up and hold them in her hands. However, they kept slipping out of her hands with each attempt. Now, luckily, Allison was able to find a shirt nearby that was left behind and used it to place her own intestines into it and held the shirt against her stomach to try and salvage them. Then Allison attempted to stand up, thinking that it would be better for her intestines if she was standing up. However, at that point, her head almost completely fell back and rested in between her two shoulder blades. Allison was almost completely decapitated. And because of this, as you can imagine, her vision was going in and out. So at this point, Allison is holding her intestines with one hand, holding her head with another. Her vision is going in and out, and she's basically just trying to use muscle memory and visual memory to keep going in the right direction. And by some miracle, Allison was able to get herself to the main road. Allison then began waving her hands back and forth to try and get any cars that were passing by to notice her. And obviously, by everything I had just described to you, Allison was in horrific 
shape at this point. And so multiple cars had stopped the second that they saw her to try and help. So at this point, Allison was laying on the ground. She was surrounded by multiple people. And Allison remembers the first woman that saw her screamed hysterically at the sight of Allison, while pretty much everyone else was just talking amongst themselves, trying to figure out what they should do to help her. It was like everyone was in a state of absolute shock. However, just seconds later, a man named Tion Eilard, who was a vet student, leaned down next to Allison, held her hand, and continued to talk to her to try and keep her awake while he instructed others to call paramedics. So this man truly was Allison's saving grace. And personally, I believe the fact that he was a vet student helped him in this scenario. Now, when paramedics arrived, Allison was rushed to the hospital. Her doctors have said in all of their years of medical practice, they had never seen any injuries as severe as Allison's. And when Allison got to the hospital, she actually was able to use her last bit of strength to write out her own name and her mother's phone number on a piece of paper for the doctors. And after that, Allison was rushed into a three-hour surgery to help repair her injuries. While Allison was in surgery, her family one by one began to be notified of her attack. They all rushed to her bedside and were there every day for her three-week stay at the hospital until she was released. And that three weeks included other surgeries and just recovery time. But if you think about it, the fact that Allison was only in the hospital for three weeks, when you look at the extent of her injuries, the fact that all of her intestines had basically fallen out of her stomach and she had almost been decapitated when really the fact that she was able to survive this attack in and of itself is mind-blowing the fact that she only stayed there for three weeks is crazy as well now you might be sitting there and thinking how on earth did allison survive this attack she was stabbed collectively a total of 54 times so how was she able to survive well, doctors determined that the reason for that is because none of the 54 stab wounds had hit a main artery. So because of that, Allison lived. So let's talk about the investigation, which quite frankly was very quick. Like I said, Allison had written the names of her attackers on a rock in her own blood at the scene of the attack. However, luckily, police did not need to use that because Allison survived. They were able to go to the hospital and speak to Allison as best as they could due to the extent of her injuries at that point to try and figure out who did this. And Allison was able to write their names on a piece of paper and give it to the authorities. Along with that, she was also able to give police a description of her car. And the reason that that was important is because both men had gotten back in the car and driven away after the attack. So they obviously had to have taken her car somewhere. So that brings us to 5 a.m. on December 19th, when the two attackers had been arrested. And as we know, those two men were Franz Dutois and Thiens Kruger. 
Thiens was 19 years old at the time of the attack, and Franz was 26 years old at the time of the attack. Authorities found Allison's car right around the corner from where the men lived, and when police arrived, both men were sleeping. However, they were arrested immediately. And these were two men that the police were actually very familiar with. So let's talk about who these men were. Like I said, Franz was 26 years old at the time of the attack. He was the son of a police officer and was raised in a Christian household. His behavioral issues began when he was in the eighth grade after he lit his room at boarding school on fire because he said he was influenced by the hidden messages in his heavy metal music. After that, he was expelled from school and him and his parents moved to a town called Adelaide, which is about 93 miles northeast of Port Elizabeth. And while in Adelaide, he met a girl who he claimed was a witch. And not only did he claim that she was a witch, Franz also claimed that this girl possessed him. When he was 18 years old, he joined the army. However, after three months, he came home and got a job at a mine. He married his first wife shortly after that, and the two of them had a daughter together. However, Franz left them shortly after his daughter was born because he claimed that his wife didn't satisfy his sexual needs. After leaving his first wife, he then moved back to Port Elizabeth, and his parents got him another job. However, he was fired from that one after it was discovered that he was stealing money from it. So he then opened an illegal alcohol shop and that is how he made his money. So he was selling alcohol illegally and then met his second wife, married her in 1993, and the two of them had a son together. So that is the backstory of Franz. Now, Theons Kruger, like I said, was 19 years old when he attacked Allison. Before he was born and while his mother was still pregnant with him, his father had left his mother. His mother then went on to marry another man. However, that relationship only lasted until about Theons was several months old. And then his mother married another man shortly after that. So that's three marriages all by the time that Theons was just one year old. Now, Theons has claimed that he was molested by his stepfather when he was growing up. However, there hasn't been any proof of that. And he really only started making those accusations after he was incarcerated. And his stepfather has actually threatened to sue him for defamation because of those accusations. Now, growing up, Theons was bullied a lot by other children, and it was kind of his gateway into getting involved with drugs and alcohol at a very early age. In 1994, which was actually the year of Allison's attack, Theons claimed to have an intense sexual relationship with a satanic witch. And Theons and Franz actually met each other through the illegal alcohol shop that Franz had. And Theons looked at Franz almost as like an older brother and a mentor, and he was heavily influenced by Franz. And Franz was definitely the more dominant ringleader between the two of them. Theons definitely just followed Franz's lead on a lot of things. And one of those things was Satanism. Franz was heavily involved in Satanism, and Theons told him that he also wanted to be involved after learning how invested Franz was in it, and Theons told Franz that he wanted to quote-unquote obtain the power of a demon. 
And like I mentioned earlier, Franz and Theans were very much familiar faces when it came to the authorities. Franz had been investigated on two other rape cases, one involving only him and another also involving Theans. And in February of 1994, Franz was arrested for kidnapping and raping a woman at gunpoint. However, he was released on bail. And he didn't end up getting charged for this rape because the woman didn't report it until a week later and there was no medical evidence or physical evidence that could prove that Franz was guilty of it. In only two weeks before Allison's attack, Franz and Theons had actually raped another pregnant woman. However, they were let out on bail again. So now they are arrested for a third time for Allison's attack. And after they were arrested, both of the men were put into different holding cells and Detective Melvin Humpel went and spoke with Theans. It is a popular police tactic to speak with the quote unquote more weaker one of the group or of the duo to try and get them to pin against each other to hopefully get the suspect to crack and tell police information. So that was the tactic that Detective Humpel was using, and it pretty much worked. Detective Humpel told Theans that he was going to be charged with attempted murder because even though they had left Allison for dead, she had survived. Detective Humpel said that when he told Theans this, he turned as white as a ghost and started screaming. However, after he had calmed his anger down, he then started talking. He told the detective that earlier that day, the day of the attack, him and Franz had been drinking and barbecuing and they decided in this conversation that they wanted to find a quote-unquote beautiful woman to rape and kill with a nice car and they planned on doing it later that night. Theans told Franz that he actually had plans to go out later that night but if Franz found a woman to just meet him on Main Street and that the two of them would carry out the attack together. Theans then continued explaining how the attack happened. He explained that Franz had strangled Allison and stabbed her to what they thought was to death before taking her car and going back home, having a few beers, and going to sleep. He claimed that they even made breakfast the following morning using the same knife that they used to stab Allison with that still had her blood on it. Theans even told the detective that after Allison's attack, him and Franz planned to abduct and murder another woman the following night and throw her off the Von Staden's bridge in Port Elizabeth. So Theans really told the police everything in order for them to put the pieces together. And once she was able to be released from the hospital, Allison was brought into the police station and asked to identify her attackers in a lineup. She picked out man number six and man number 13, which sure enough were Franz and Theans. Both Franz and Theans ended up taking a plea deal and pled guilty to eight charges, including kidnapping, rape, and attempted murder. However, they did not go down without a fight because Franz actually did a press conference and claimed that he was possessed by demons. He said that he had been involved in Satanism since the age of 13, and he claimed to have an evil side that came out only when he was drunk. 
And like I mentioned earlier, Franz had a wife and two children, which he claimed that he was worried would also be possessed by these demons. Now, Theans, on the other hand, claimed that he was also, like Franz, involved in Satanism and that he had two alter ego nicknames, Damien and Chucky. Damien came from the movie The Omen, which the character where the devil's son in the movie is named Damien and Chucky is the creepy doll from that movie Chucky. And Theans claimed that he did not have any feelings for anyone. He had no feelings whatsoever, none good, none bad, no feelings at all. Franz and Theans ended up taking the plea deal on March 23rd, 1995, and then just the following day on the 24th, their attorney read a statement that Franz made that said, quote, I just told her sorry when she pleaded with me not to kill her. I put both my hands around her neck and squeezed. I strangled her until she went completely limp. I pushed Theans away and cut her repeatedly across the throat. I probably cut her 20 to 30 times on the same place with the knife." Unquote. Now obviously this statement that Franz made was in regards to Allison's attack. And it hasn't been said or clarified why that statement was read in court because it definitely doesn't work in his favor and his attorney was the one who read the statement. Now, during the sentencing trial, there was actually a pastor who testified to the fact that Franz was in fact possessed by a demon, however, that he had undergone an exorcism and was now demon-free. Both Franz and Theans were sentenced to life in prison in August of 1995. After they were given their sentence and were being taken away, Theans banged against a wall and yelled, well, here we go, fuck you all. Franz was sentenced to serve three life sentences in prison. Now, both men have applied for parole, which has made many people very, very angry, and luckily thus far, they have not been able to receive parole. And it doesn't seem like they ever will. They've attempted to get parole probably three or four times at this point, and it just has not happened. Now let's get back to Allison. So when it comes to her, after she was released from the hospital and after Theans and Franz were put into prison, she ended up moving out of her apartment that she lived in at the time of the attack and she moved into a very secured complex and she actually lived on her own. I definitely thought that after such brutal of an attack that she would want to live with someone else for just safety reasons, but she wanted to live on her own and she did it. She also got rid of her car in attempts to remove everything that reminded her of the night on December 18th. And despite this case being very public, Allison very well could have lived the rest of her life not speaking on her attack. And she could have lived a very quiet life after it. However, Allison decided to take the worst thing that could ever happen to a person and turn it into some good. She made the decision for herself that she did not want to be known as the victim in this case any longer. She did her first big interview with a national magazine called You, and over time she realized that sharing her story and bringing light to the situation was not only healing for her, but it was also a way of, for her to regain her power. She quit her job in December of 1995. She underwent some reparative surgery to help some of the scars to heal. And then Allison went on to become a motivational speaker. 
She began traveling around the world and to this day has gone to over 35 countries to help encourage other survivors to come forward and share their stories as well. She's won multiple awards, written two books, and is now married with two children. And that, you guys, is the case of Allison Bioda. Like I said, I really can't believe it's taken us this long to get to this case. I had never heard of it before, and when I started looking into it, I was shocked at the horror of the case and how much of a nightmare, you know, nightmare isn't even the right word. This goes far beyond that, and the fact that Allison was able to survive, and she not only survived this, but she decided that she didn't want to be the victim, and she wanted to regain her power back. And she wanted to be a motivational speaker and she wanted to tell people and encourage other victims to come forward and share their stories. And I think that that is one of the most amazing things that I've seen in a really long time. And that's why I really wanted to share this case with you guys today. So that is today's case, you guys. I'm really interested and excited to hear what you have to say about it. But with that being said, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and then again every Thursday on YouTube as well. You're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.